talk and action, or lack thereof, coming and going, buying and selling. It's all on display in Major League Baseball. And there's much more going on. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! One of the great things about baseball, and there are many, it's a wonderful blessing from the Lord, but one of the great things about a baseball game as well as a baseball season, is its ebb and flow. Action and anticipation. Work and rest. Intensity and playfulness. And at this time of the season, when we are 30 hours or less, as you're listening to this, from the trade deadline, there is a whole lot of talk and action. But there's also much speculation. And for many fans... It just is going to be wishful thinking. Wishful thinking of something taking place that never comes to fruition. The trade deadline for Major League Baseball this year is tomorrow, August 1st, at 6 p.m. And already there have been a number of trades. And there are many others still being discussed as potentially, or in some cases almost certainly, coming to pass before the deadline. Every year when we get to the deadline, there are buyers and sellers. Because 40% of the teams make the postseason, there has been over the last couple of years more buyers typically than sellers because a lot of teams think we still got a chance. Maybe we're out of it in our division, but we've got a chance to secure one of those three wildcard places into the playoffs in the American or National League. But there are some teams that are sellers that are a surprise. Teams that at the beginning of the season... I would say nobody would have thought would be selling at this time of the year. One of those teams is the St. Louis Cardinals. They have made trades. They've traded away men like Jordan Hicks, who they sent to Toronto, and Jordan Montgomery, who they sent to the Texas Rangers. They're likely to make more trades in the next day and a half. They have said, however, that they will not be trading Nolan Arenado. So if you're a Cardinals fan, it's been a tough season. And I'm sure it's difficult to watch some of these trades, but at least you can hold out hope that Arenado will remain a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. A team buying, I've already mentioned, the Texas Rangers. Not only did they get Jordan Montgomery from the St. Louis Cardinals, prior to that, they acquired Max Scherzer from the New York Mets. Texas currently has a one-game lead over the Astros in the AL West. They're doing all that they can to try to put themselves in a position to hold off the defending world champions. The New York Mets would be like the Cardinals, a team that at the beginning of the season nobody thought would be making trades, selling off at this time of the year. They traded Scherzer to Texas. They also traded David Robertson to Miami. The question is, who's next? And the real question, or the big question is, is Justin Verlander next? I'm saying he is. The question is where? There had been talk about the Rangers. 
I'm assuming that's no longer the case since they got Scherzer and Montgomery. There's been talk about him returning to Houston, possibly the Dodgers. I don't know what's next. I know what happened yesterday. He pitched against the Washington Nationals. Five and a third innings, five hits, one run, one walk, five strikeouts. Picking up his 250th career win, which is a great accomplishment for a man also on his way to the Hall of Fame. So now on the season, the 40-year-old has a 3.15 ERA. But over the last seven games, his ERA is 1.49. We'll see what happens with Justin Verlander. Maybe no team is being discussed and debated more than the Los Angeles Angels, in particular by their fans. A couple of weeks ago, they said, we're listening to offers on Otani. Then they said, no, we're not. Then they said, we're buyers, and they've acquired the likes of Lucas Giolito. But fans, Angels fans in particular, but I think fans in general are saying, ah, what are they doing? Is this the right thing to do? Well, we'll get back to that in a minute. But if the Angels are the team being discussed and debated more than any other, there's no doubt that there's a player being discussed, and he will be discussed in the next day and a half. He will be discussed through the end of the season and into the offseason, no matter what happens between now and the trade deadline. And it's this man. There were some uh, some clapping for Shohei, who goes to the opposite field. Get going, yeah! His major league leading 37th. Oppo shot. And remember, he threw a shutout in game one of this doubleheader. And then he hits an opposite field rocket out. And the cheers here at Comerica Park for Shohei Otani. Great it seems that Otani never ceases to amaze. And as you heard in that clip, this was from Thursday. He pitched a complete game shutout in game one of a doubleheader. That was his first of two home runs in the second game of the doubleheader. And then he hit another home run in his first day at bat the following day. And now he's at 39. But here's the question that I think all fans have, but especially Los Angeles Angels fans. All right. We're currently five back in the AL West. We're four back from the wild card, the final wild card spot. Do we legitimately have a chance to make the postseason? Now, there are some, I heard Dave Roberts say it, thinking, hey, it's good. It's good that Artie Moreno and the front office from the Angels have said, we're going for it. We're all in. We're keeping Otani. We're making a push for the postseason. But I think more people, and especially lifelong Angels fans, are saying, wait a second do we really think we're going to make the postseason? And many of them say, we're not. August is a tough schedule for the Angels. They play the next three games in Atlanta against the Braves. And so now they're saying, okay, if if we really don't think we have a chance to make the postseason, and of course, mathematically, they're in it. But as they look at the big picture, they say, do we really have a chance? And if we don't, and therefore we don't make the postseason and Otani becomes a free agent, which he will be at the end of this season, do we, the Angels, have a legitimate chance at re-signing Otani, who's likely going to sign for somewhere $500, $600 million, somewhere in that range? And if we don't and we lose him, all we get back if we hold on to him through the end of the season is a compensation, compensation pick in the draft next year. There is much to think about if you're Artie Moreno, 
the Angels front office, or Angels fans. And there's a lot for us all to watch unfold. Again, over the next day and a half, but also if Otani stays throughout the next, what, two months plus. I have to admit something. I have failed you pretty significantly on a couple of fronts. First, I have failed by not talking enough about this man. And that'll bring up Miguel Cabrera in his final visit to Miami. This clip is from Miguel Cabrera's first at-bat in Miami on Saturday. And it's inexcusable that I have failed you in this way because I'm a lifelong Tigers fan and Miguel Cabrera is in his final season and he is on his way to the Hall of Fame. But of course, you know, he began his career in Miami. This weekend, he returned there, his final trip to Miami, and it was a great weekend. Again, the clip was from Saturday. That was from his first at-bat. He ended up hitting a double in that first at-bat. But the whole weekend was filled with this kind of activity, this kind of appreciation from Marlins fans, from the Tigers teammates that Miguel Cabrera has been playing with for years now. And then he got his final at-bat. As I mentioned, he hit a double in his first at-bat on Saturday, and then this is what happened in his final at-bat on Saturday in the ninth inning. First pitch, ground ball up the middle into center field, the base hit. How about that? A double early. A single late, he'll get one more opportunity to be cheered by this big crowd in Miami and by his teammates. What a moment. It was a great moment. And again, it did not end on Saturday. He had the same opportunities yesterday. His final at bat, he walked. And again, he was removed from the game so that he could be cheered and appreciated by Marlins fans and by his Tigers teammates. The other area that I have failed you is by not talking to you about something. At least I don't believe I've even mentioned it. I know I have not recommended it as I ought to have. And it's a great podcast. And if you're not familiar with it, I have failed you by not telling you you want to be familiar with it. But before I get to that... uh, Something has happened. So I was very, very busy through this summer because I helped with both of my son's baseball teams. One of my sons is 10. The other one is 14. And my son's 14-year-old team, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, went to state. And so I was very, very busy, in particular at night. And so I didn't get a chance very often to sit down and watch a lot of Major League Baseball games. However, now that the season is over, I was able to watch four games from the middle of the week, Wednesday through yesterday. Four full games. And it happened to work out that all of them were Braves games. We were up in Michigan on Wednesday, and the ESPN game was the Braves against the Red Sox in Boston. I watched that game. Then we were back here in Virginia, and we were able to watch the Braves and Brewers three-game series. Now, both of my sons, my 14-year-old and 10-year-old sons, are Braves fans. But here's the thing. When we're at home, we don't get to watch the Atlanta Braves, at least not live. We're about four and a half hours outside of Atlanta, north of Atlanta, and therefore the Braves games are blacked out. Now, don't contact Major League Baseball. I don't know why we were able to watch this weekend, but my my sons were very excited as Braves fans, 
And I was excited because we were able to watch them, and I was able to watch them against the team that I worked for for eight years, the Brewers. And I'll tell you this, the Braves' offense was extraordinarily impressive. They swept the Brewers those three games, and in those three games, they scored 29 runs on 41 hits. And of those 41 hits, 11 were home runs. And Marcel Ozuna was absolutely on fire. Now remember, the Brewers have had solid pitching all season. They've been very good lately, and their bullpen has been outstanding lately. And yet the Braves dismantled them. And when I was watching, I saw great approaches by Braves hitters at the plate. And there is no doubt their offense is impressive from 1 to 9. I know some people are saying, yeah, but what about our pitching, in particular the bullpen? Well, I don't know about that. And it will be interesting to see if the Braves make any trades in the next day and a half to secure or to strengthen those areas. But boy, oh boy, are they impressive on offense. Now, the podcast. As I mentioned, I do not think I've brought it up. I know I haven't recommended it to you. But there is a podcast, if you are not familiar with, if you haven't listened to, and you are a baseball fan, you want to listen to it. It is called The Book of Joe. And the podcast is hosted by Joe Madden and Tom Ferducci. This past week, a former teammate of mine, albeit very briefly, was a guest on the show. That former teammate is Scott Bradley. Scott Bradley, who was a major league catcher for nine years, and for the last 25 years, has been the head coach at Princeton. Scott Bradley, who caught Randy Johnson's first no-hitter. Johnson threw that no-hitter back in 1990 against the Tigers. Scott Bradley was his catcher. And so there was a great conversation among these three men. Verducci and Bradley go back, I think, to high school days. They competed against one another, and I think also with one another, back when they were younger. And so you have Verducci, a lifelong reporter, and a lifelong friend of Scott Bradley. You have Scott Bradley, a big league catcher for nine years, a head coach at Princeton for 25. You have Joe Madden, who was a catcher professionally, did not get to the major leagues as a player, but of course has had an outstanding career as a manager. And so the conversation was so enjoyable. They talked about a number of things as it regards baseball, but again, given both Madden and Scott Bradley's background, they especially talked about catching. And one of the things that Joe Madden addressed, something that he brought up during this interview, is something that I've been wondering about myself this season. Uh, I'm amazed that umpires are not more vocal about not pulling pitches, which it really comes down to. It's really pulling a pitch. The pitch that's a ball that they pull to become a strike. To me, if I'm an umpire, I'm saying, listen, brother, keep doing that. You're not getting anything. Because that's what it used to be like. If you if the umpire thought you were pulling stuff on him, framing, pulling, you're not getting anything, man. You're not going to get nothing. So-, so two things. One, I know myself as well, that's the way it used to be. I call it yanking call it pulling, framing, whatever you want. But when you're yanking or pulling the ball from outside of the strike zone into the strike zone, back even when I played, that wasn't going to happen. A catcher was going to be told by the umpire, as Joe Madden said, stop it. And yet, I've been seeing it. Now, I haven't paid that close of attention to it in the sense of I've noticed it happening, but this week watching four full games and really zeroing in on things, I was amazed not only that it's going on, not only that the catchers aren't being told by the umpires, knock that off, but how often it, quote-unquote, worked. I can't blame an organization. I can't blame the catchers for doing it because I don't know the percentage, but it was a high percentage of pitches that, at least from what I could tell, were outside of the zone 
that the catcher pulled or yanked, and the umpire called it a strike. And I've never understood that in the sense that I remember when I was the pitching coach in Brevard County, our high A-ball team with the Brewers, that there were some pitches that, to me, looked like strikes. And the umpire was calling them balls. And so I asked our catcher, and I think the, the man catching this game was Brent Dean. I said, hey, Brent, I said, what's going on back there? They look like strikes to me. And he said, I think they're strikes. And I said, is the umpire telling you that you're taking the pitch out of the zone? And he said, yeah, he is. I said, go back and tell him that I say to him, quit talking manifest nonsense. Because by the time the ball gets to the catcher, it's at least three feet, sometimes four or five feet, behind the front of the strike zone. So it's manifestly impossible to take a pitch out of the strike zone. But now it appears that catchers are able to take a pitch out of the strike zone into the strike zone and oftentimes have the umpires call it for a strike. Again, it's one of those things that just doesn't make sense on multiple levels to me any more than it does to Joe Madden. Now, Scott Bradley, again, as the guest, also had great things to say about catching and catchers. And one of the things that good catchers understand and pitchers appreciate is that ultimately the catcher's number one job is to handle the pitching staff. If they can hit, that's great. That's a bonus. But it's handling the pitching staff. And by handling, I don't mean simply receiving the pitches. I mean dealing with the men who make up the pitching staff. By handling, I don't mean just collectively the 12 or 13 or 14 pitchers, but knowing each pitcher and how to deal with each pitcher individually. And one of the reasons why Scott Bradley had the kind of career he did as a catcher was understanding that and also being good at that. And I thought he expressed that very, very well in these comments. Like you mentioned, Randy on game days was mean and everything else. But Randy is a very sensitive person who you had to know how to treat. Um, I can remember early in his career with the Mariners, you know, some of the coaches would just say, you're big, you throw hard, just throw the ball, just throw the ball, aim in the middle, throw the ball down the middle. Well, Randy wanted to be a pitcher. So I would sit down with him and I would go over location with what we wanted to do with every hitter, even though I knew he wasn't capable of doing it, but you just had to go through that act because mentally he wanted to prepare like everybody else. He didn't want to be known as the big, hard-throwing guy who was just trying to throw the ball in the vicinity of home plate. I would encourage you to listen to that clip again and again, especially if you are a catcher or a manager or head coach at the amateur level or front office. I think what Scott Bradley said there in that comment about Randy Johnson, and you had to know how to treat him. And Scott Bradley didn't just treat a future Hall of Famer that way. He treated anybody on the staff that he was catching that way, from the middle reliever who might only pitch a year in the big leagues to a future Hall of Famer. That right there, that conversation, that portion of the conversation by Scott Bradley is invaluable, in my opinion. He understood, and we all need to understand, again, You were dealing with quote-unquote old school where people saw something and said, just do this. We could talk about the quote-unquote new school, which is here's what all the numbers tell us. But you have to have the Scott Bradleys of the world as catchers, as managers, whatever the case may be, to understand, okay, but 
who is Randy Johnson? How do I treat Randy Johnson in such a way as to get the most out of him? Scott Bradley didn't argue whether or not the people's opinion of Randy Johnson was accurate or not. That wasn't the point. He understood the person, and he understood how to treat the person, and in doing so, helped the person. And, again, the other pitchers on that staff, and therefore helped the team and helped the organization. So the conversation between Tom Verducci, Joe Madden, and Scott Bradley was excellent, and it is well worth an hour of your time to listen to it. And if you're not familiar with the podcast, if you haven't listened to it in the past, I would encourage you to do so. Now again, they focused in many ways on catching, but they discussed a lot of things in that episode last week. And one of the things that they discussed was that it's a fact that from a young age, and even through Major League Baseball, so many catchers in particular and players in general are told what to do rather than taught. They talk about catchers, even young catchers, having the coaches call all of the pitches. So here this 12-year-old or this 15-year-old or this 18-year-old, or from 12 to 18 to 22, and then they get into pro ball, they've never called a game for themselves. So they don't know how to call the game. They haven't learned. And the same thing can be applied to base running, to positioning on defense, all of those things. And then Joe Madden talked about the fact, and he talked about this in a way of being disappointed or discouraged, that what's going on is that the players aren't thinking. And they're not thinking because they're not asked to think. And because they're not asked to think, they're not able to think. And therefore, the need for all of the instructions, the need for the cards that you pull out of the back of your pocket, all of those things. And Joe Madden was saying, I don't think this is a good thing. And many people, and I'm included in that, also do not think it's a good thing. We would agree with Joe Madden. Some might draw the conclusion that these kinds of things are unintended consequences resulting from the state of things today. I, however, believe it's by design. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.